0: 20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the ACAST supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20 history. I'm David A. Bradbury, and this is 20-Minute History. On today's episode, you've already met Amelia Earhart, the pioneering pilot and first woman to make the famous transatlantic trip. But there is another female flyer who not only broke a similar barrier, but also made it her life's mission to uplift fellow members of her race at an especially tragic point in US history when her race couldn't have needed it more. If you haven't already, you really should meet Bessie Coleman. This is season one, episode six. Let's jump right in. May 31st, 1921. Tulsa, Oklahoma. The scene of one of the most brutal, heartbreaking, racially motivated attacks ever to occur on American soil. It all started that day with a derailed lynching. Dick Rowland, a black man who had been accused of assaulting a white woman, faced a mob of more than 1,500 people who planned on taking his life, but was defended by a group of armed men from the predominantly black Greenwood area of the city. This initial skirmish set off a violent confrontation between black and white Tulsans that lasted throughout the afternoon and into the evening. And though the fighting did taper off somewhat in the early morning hours of June 1st, the massacre was yet far from over, as white people began to take up arms with the stated intention of completely destroying the black neighborhood that they degradingly called Little Africa. People were shot, fires were set. And just past daybreak that morning, black people in Greenwood watched as some of their worst fears materialized. As they looked toward the sky, they could see planes flying overhead. It's unclear where these planes came from, who was flying them, or what exactly they were dropping, but what is clear is that Greenwood was suffering a full aerial assault from metal wings that exacerbated the fires and resulted in absolute chaos. At the conclusion of the attack, dozens of people, most of them black, lay dead. Scores more sustained injuries, and hundreds of homes had burned to the ground. I can only imagine that to any onlookers, it must have looked like a war zone, and overwhelmingly to the black people that experienced it, it felt like a war zone. It was the first time that airplanes had been used in a racist ambush in America, and as Jill D. Snyder elaborates, for Afro-Americans nationwide, the specter of having weapons of war used against them not by the enemy, but by their own country it didn't help to quell their fears that those machines would eventually spell their elimination. Out of this anxiety, two different camps emerged. First, the black nationalists. For them, Tulsa was yet another sign of the coming race war. White people, they argued, would stop at nothing to wipe black people from existence, and with the recent upgrades in military technology, nationalists could see no reason why that fear could not become reality. So, they argued that the most laudable goal of black people was both to compile and learn to use the weaponry, e.g., airplanes, that their white oppressors had created, lest they become the subjects of the world's latest genocide. And in case you think I'm exaggerating, in a 1919 speech that activist Marcus Garvey gave at Carnegie Hall, he implored the Afro American to, quote, remember what the white man did. To the North American Indian. So yeah. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there were black integrationists. These folks believed that the advancement of black people served a few primary purposes. Beyond actually making black lives materially better, they thought that if black people managed to exceed the expectations that the prejudiced masses held them to, then perhaps white people would start seeing them in a more equal light. This included, but was by no means limited to, becoming pilots of the very planes that had damaged them. Now obviously these two views differ greatly, but nevertheless they did share one critical characteristic in common. Whether to prepare for war or just to get a leg up in a white man's world, black people needed to learn how to fly. And I hope you're now beginning to see that what sounded like an unrelated story is actually deeply connected to the biography of Bessie Coleman. The year was 1892. With the nation having just abolished slavery less than half a century ago, Susan and George Coleman found themselves in the throes of Jim Crow, a system specifically designed to leave black people in poverty, without a voice in politics, and perpetually subservient to white people. Perhaps the birth of their daughter Bessie on January 26th provided them a temporary escape from that world, but if it did, it was brief. It would have taken a lot more than that to help them forget the epidemic of racialized lynching unfolding before them, which, according to an investigation by Ida B. Wells, had caused the deaths of 728 Southern black men in the preceding decade alone. Nevertheless, George and Susan did everything they could to make sure young Bessie was able to enjoy a relatively comfortable life on her father's new plot of land in Waxahachie, Texas. And for a while, it worked. Prior to turning nine, her time, like that of most children, was neatly divided between doing chores, attending church, going to school, and playing in her yard. Completely normal childhood behaviors. But in 1901, this somewhat sleepy routine would be interrupted when her father left the family for a more reserved life in Oklahoma. Susan Coleman had to abruptly find work as a cook in order to support her children, leaving Bessie to look after her younger siblings during the daytime hours. It is no surprise that this shift interrupted her attendance at her all-black one-room schoolhouse, which itself already experienced periodic interruptions in its term when the cotton-picking season arrived in the Lone Star State. Yeah, that's right. Even though slavery hadn't been officially practiced in those parts for a few decades, cotton still reigned supreme in the South, so much so that it was not uncommon for black schools in the area to let out early so that the children could lend a hand in the fields. Bessie Coleman hated this boring, demeaning work, and I'm certainly not inclined to blame her. Forced to toil for long hours in the hot field for pennies on the dollar, Bessie began to feel a seed. Very much intended, growing deep inside of her, that would eventually grow into a lifelong quest to, in her words, amount to something. Unfortunately, this pursuit would not bear fruit immediately, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Early adulthood found Coleman attending normal school in Langston, Oklahoma, working as a laundress in Waxahachie, and becoming a beautician in Chicago, all in an attempt to escape the abject poverty that the family had endured ever since George left. After all, it was her mother's greatest ambition for her eldest daughter. Little did either of them know that a spur-of-the-moment decision made on a fateful day in autumn 1919 would not just lead her out of a financial hard place. It would dictate the path of the rest of her life. Here's how the story supposedly goes. At 27 years of age, Bessie had found relative stability as a manicurist in a Chicago barbershop. The work suited her fine, and though she found it rather unsatisfying compared to the big things that her younger self had planned for her future, she had the resolve to stick with it until something better came along. As luck would have it, in the middle of another routine workday, her brother John wandered into the shop, high on life. And probably some alcohol, too. John had recently returned from active military deployment in the Great War, serving in the all-black 8th Army National Guard. However, on this day, these memories were little more than the inspiration for his drunken ramblings, particularly about the French women he had met and their supposed prowess in aeronautics. American women, and in particular black American women, were nothing like those French girls, John allegedly teased, and his sister Bessie could only dream of someday standing in their shadow. Bessie's reaction, as dictated by Doris L. Rich, was to stare back at her brother and utter the following. That's it. You just called it for me. A witness in that barbershop probably wouldn't have seen much in this interaction beyond a casual battle between siblings, but Bessie saw in John's challenge the chance to shine, to rise to the top, to soar. If she was going to soar, she would need a license, and it was here that she encountered roadblock, or skyblock, I guess, number one. Of all the top flight schools in the country, most of them were not accepting black students, and those that would were certainly not taking any black women on board. Not one to let a little racism or sexism stop her, however, Bessie decided to take her talents to France. Wee oui, wee, oui, that's right. Bessie Coleman was a student at the top flight school in France, not once, but twice. She learned everything she needed to be a pilot, along with all the tricks that would give her flying extra style. After all, one doesn't need to spend very long in France to develop a taste for the finer things. Listen, I'm sorry you had to hear that, but I really couldn't help myself. Anyways, jump ahead to August of 1922. Coleman returned to New York by boat, only to find that everyone in the country had its eyes on her, and no one more so than her black brothers and sisters. Just a year removed from the massacre in Tulsa, reformists and Garveyites alike could only hope that Bessie, with her newfound public megaphone, would amplify their message. The desire to live up to both sides, expectations of her must have been beyond great, but Coleman clearly knew that there was little to no overlap in their worldviews. In the end, someone was going to be a little disappointed in her. So then the question you must be naturally asking is, who would it be? Unsurprisingly, it was the radicals who would miss out on their ideal image of Queen Bess, Though Snyder includes in her article some examples from Coleman's early career in which she pays lip service to concerns about white technological warfare, this attitude doesn't seem to have lasted long, and Coleman quickly switched to using more universally appealing language. Whether the shift resulted from a genuine change of heart or the realization that Americans in general would not take kindly to garvey rhetoric is open for debate. Snyder makes clear her wager on the latter, and I for one think that's not an unreasonable assumption, since Coleman's unique identity placed her simultaneously in two polar opposite worlds. That of a pilot, a profession in its infancy that was thoroughly idolized by the public, and that of a black woman, a much maligned, to put it lightly, social group at this point in time. Given these factors, affecting change in her world probably required a lighter approach, and if that was indeed Coleman's plan from the beginning, it was smashingly successful. To start, it is likely that distancing herself from extreme views furthered her own fame and notoriety by making both the black and white press comfortable with covering her, The praise she would receive from mass media outlets for being the first, quote, Negro aviatrix, then helped motivate thousands of people to attend her flying performances, which would then lead to more coverage and bigger crowds, etc. One of her solo shows in February of 1923 even received so much positive promotion that upwards of 10,000 people gathered to see her fly in Los Angeles. Without a doubt, Bessie sure knew how to make a name for herself. Furthermore, it has also been suggested that her centrism in this debate, however disenchanting it was to the vocal minority, helped her become accepted as a bona fide hero in the broader black community. Coleman often articulated that her biggest ambition in life was to open a flight school in the States to train ambitious African Americans to become pilots. Though this dream of hers never became a reality, it was a dream which was nonetheless generally applauded for its intention to show black people that if she could do it, they could do it. What's more, on several occasions, Bessie made it clear she was not afraid to pull out of shows when she learned that the audience would be all white or segregated, a move that frequently resulted in a change of policy. These were both thoroughly laudable maneuvers and goals which nearly the entire community, regardless of their stance on black separatism, could see as a step in the right direction. And on top of all of that, it needs to be said that Coleman was a truly talented pilot, with the ability to pull complex tricks and stunts with the best of them. Now, I am more than aware that there may be some people out there who would scoff at hearing her called a great pilot, pointing to a number of crashes she suffered throughout her career, including at the aforementioned LA Air Show. These same people also tend to, but do not always, bring up her history of reckless financial decisions along with her failure to ever establish her school to argue that more than not being a model pilot, perhaps we should not take Coleman as a role model in any sense. If you'll excuse my frankness, I think these arguments are seriously lacking in nuance. First of all, Amy Sue Bix does well to remind us that during the era in which Coleman flew, airplane technology was still extremely new, meaning that even the top pilots suffered at least one crash during their career, and many of them survived multiple. And second of all, Bix claims that Coleman's frequent lack of funds to manifest her goals was often not entirely her fault. While white female pilots could often find extra opportunities to earn money in aviation sales, quote, due to her race, it is unlikely Coleman would have secured the same types of aviation business employment that they did. Point being, even in consideration of all of these factors, it is not a stretch to say that Coleman placed at the top of her class in aviation and in her accomplishments more generally. And by 1926, I think Bessie may have thought so too. Or at the very least, when she weighed the achievements she had accrued against the crashes she had been involved in, the idea of flying for the rest of her life became less and less appealing. Around this time, she resolved to quit flying for the safety and comfort of a teaching job, but not wishing to go out without a bang, she committed to doing one farewell flight in Jacksonville. She could not anticipate that this would not just be her last flight. It would be the last thing she would ever do. On the day of the exhibition, Coleman had fellow flyer William Wills pilot her up before the show began so that she could survey the terrain in preparation for a jump she had planned to make. In order to get herself a better view of the ground below, she had not fastened her seat belt prior to takeoff. Mid flight, the engine stalled and the plane flipped upside down, sending her plummeting to the ground. She died far too young, at age 34. The poet Langston Hughes once famously asked, What happens to a dream deferred? Bessie Coleman never had the chance to read this poem, but I'd like to think that that theme was one of the primary motivating principles of her life. Here was a black woman for whom it must have been exceedingly difficult to escape the lives of poverty and oppression that her ancestors had lived, and yet if she ever feared that she would meet the same fate as they had, it never slowed her down. It spurred her on. Coleman was driven by the conviction that her dreams would not pass her by, no matter how long it took or how hard it was for her to get there, and when she got there she would not forget where she came from rather dedicating herself to helping other members of her race in bettering their lives and achieving their wildest ambitions. Bessie Coleman lived a fast, exciting, and above all, a meaningful life. And though she flew too close to the sun at times, the fact that she got so close to begin with unquestionably helped pave the way for future black pioneers of aeronautics. To borrow a phrase from the black astronaut Mae Jemison, Ever since Bessie came along, quote, it looks like a great day for flying. Thank you very much once again for listening to the sixth installment of 20-Minute History. As always, if you liked it, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, leaving a rating, and checking us out on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 20minhistory. As we always do, a very special thanks to the women whose works informed this episode, Jill D. Snyder, Doris L. Rich, and Amy Sue Bix. And when we return for next week's episode, we will talk about the man, the myth, the Russian bearded legend. But until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning, lest you know what repeats itself.